Peppers get the mango passion fruit mochi donut? Thank you. There's five. Yeah. You can keep the change. Nineteen fifty-one was the year that the UNHCR first made guidelines for the protection of refugees that were eventually expanded into a global mandate. It is also the name of a cafe right off of Telegraph Avenue near Mars. You can order matcha, blueberry, and ube mochi donuts, Japanese curry scones, and Thai tea custard cakes. For drinks, there's oat milk chai or Iranian rose lemonade. There are even mochi waffles, which was a new one for me. My name is Dee. Hi. Um, so, can you tell me a little bit about 1951 Coffee Company? Yeah, sure. Um, we're you. a nonprofit and we work with refugees and we offer free job training. Thank you. Yeah. What's the mission? Like, what's the purpose? Yeah, yeah. So, the mission is to provide um, job training basically to give people jobs that are um, a little more high paying since barista staff make um, tips um, and then also to put people in a place where they can interact with more Americans and feel a little more culturally integrated and connected to their community. Do you think, um, have you seen like a really good impact? Oh yeah, it's been great. Um, we work with like pretty much every big coffee company in the area. Um, jobs and be able to support their families and make a career out of, um, out of being a barista or working in the cost industry. There's an infographic, almost a timeline, that wraps along the walls describing what a refugee's journey looks like. It starts with a life like yours completely disrupted. I would say like one thing that surprised me when I started working here is just that there's so many um, refugees here. Like before, I guess especially before Trump was elected, there's uh, maybe like 500 to 700 refugees resettle just in the East Bay every year. And um, yeah, so there's just a really big refugee community that I think people are not aware of. Then once Trump got elected, did people... Like, yeah, so, so just like the... It's been a lot harder to get into the U.S. Even if you're approved by the U.N. as a refugee, then um, a lot of people are kind of stuck waiting like in a second country. So not their home country, but like a second country that they flee to. Um, and yeah, it is sad uh, because a lot of our baristas have families um, in those countries that aren't able to make it here and reunite with them. So um, yeah, there's definitely been a big shift. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks so much. Yeah, of course. Okay. On the other side of the infograph, which represents the average 17 years that it takes for a refugee family to resettle, the caption reads, cultural orientation, a new life with new challenges. That's the transition that 1951 Coffee strives to make easier by creating a business that is shaped around employing refugees. That could mean providing a community where difference is expected and perfect English isn't. One fifteen nineteen employee, Michelle, posted this under the hashtag BaristaLove. The Bay Area is composed of individuals with different views, beliefs, and understandings. 1951 offers a space where we can come under the same roof and live into those differences. You're able to enter the space and jump from stranger to familiar to friend quickly with their employees. To be on a first-name basis with some of them is something really special for me. This is Sachi Redding, my brother. However, 
1519 Coffee is a small safe haven within an atmosphere that works against refugees. That was Lucero, a counselor at El Cerrito High School whose work is largely with students who are newcomers or English learners. It's so intense. Um, how, how does it generally affect the students? Um, you know, it's really hard. Um, I always try, whenever I have a newcomer come in to our school, I always try to connect with them um, because... I'm sorry, I'm talking to my daughter right here. acceptance rate has decreased an alarming amount in the past few years. In 2016, the USA accepted 85,000 refugees, in 2017, 54,000, in 2018, 45,000, and in 2019, a shocking 33% drop from the previous year at only 30,000 refugees. Our new policies are quickly becoming worse over time, decreasing about 10,000 refugees or more each year. Every single denied refugee has to deal with surviving in their country, before they are maybe even accepted into the U.S. or another country. Currently, there is the highest worldwide rate of people being forced to leave their countries for safety since World War II. Human rights violations, violence, poverty, war, and persecution in 2018 left 68.5 million people displaced. One in every 113 people, if that hits you harder. The refugee crisis is a global crisis that many countries like ours struggle to address. That's why immigration policies are one of the most widely debated topics. But the instability really shows when you look at safe countries, of which the U.S. is one, which altogether deny about 75% of asylees' entry. U.S. Congress, for example, set 2019's refugee admission ceiling at 30,000, 
which only accounts for about 25% of last year's 132,683 applicants. So, the immigration ceiling makes the U.S. inaccessible to tens of thousands of people being held in inhumane detention centers and in need of a safe country. I think that would be like ideal if the um, government would be able to issue visas for people to come and work or even to come and visit. I have family members who just want to come and see their kids who they haven't seen in over 20 years. Well, and they go over and they apply for a visa, they pay over $1,000 and they're denied the visa and they lose all their money. That's crazy. That's yeah, crazy. So that, and that happens every day. Every day there's people applying for visas and they get denied. Asylum seekers face devastation and horror in their native countries. Isn't it unfortunate, Tucker, that we can't welcome more? It's too bad. Right, but as the U.S. Senator from Alabama, Jeff Sessions, let America know during the presidential campaigns in 2016... The proof is in. Terrorists are getting into the United States posing as refugees. Her goal is disconnected in reality. These huge increases will result in more terrorism against the United States. He was referring to Hillary Clinton's proposed plan to admit 65,000 refugees from Syria in the first year of her presidency. Here's Robert Bentley, the governor of Alabama, in an interview with CNN. So my heart says that we should let them in, but uh, my head says that I have to protect the people of the state of Alabama and keep them secure. The leading anti-refugee claim is that refugees come in and take American jobs, steal from government aid, such as welfare, and hurt the economy, commit crimes, and create mistrust because any one of them could be a terrorist. So, what really happens when a large number of refugees enters a community? What is the cost? What happens to threaten our security? Or is the driving mentality that refugees will hurt society based on false pretenses? We took a look at the town Albertville in Alabama, the state where both Sessions and Bentley represented. Starting in the 90s and over two decades, Albertville, an all-white town with a population of 15,000, suddenly had 6,000 more. They were immigrants, mostly from Mexico. About half were there illegally, which made the people of Albertville worry that... The IRS is simply handing out your tax dollars to people who don't even live here. Basically, the fear was that illegal immigrants weren't paying taxes since they weren't registered, and people didn't want to be paying for their emergency blood transfer or other government-provided services. That definitely gives away the selfishness within the America First mentality. Just listen. Even individuals who are here illegally benefit from our tax dollars. Expenditures like educating children, medical care, administration of justice, child care, temporary assistance to needy families, and school meal programs all end up benefiting illegal aliens. But hold on. You cannot live in the United States and evade taxes. When a cashier rings up an undocumented immigrant's groceries, this is not the reaction. That adds up to thirty six fifty. Do you have a Safeway savings card? No, but I'm not in the country legally, so I don't do taxes. All right, your new total is thirty two eighty five. Have a good one. Thank you. Illegal immigrants pay taxes. 
about $13 billion per year just in sales tax. Almost all employers require your social security number, which means you are eligible to work in the United States. And often, illegal immigrants use fake social security numbers. They still have to pay the payroll connected with it. All this means is that they can never collect tax returns, Medicare, or social security. It will be a surprise to the Federation for Immigration Reform and Andrea Moorhead, who we heard earlier, that this works the opposite way people think. Undocumented immigrants take less than they put into the United States, in more ways than one. Back in Albertville, most of the immigrants ended up working in poultry plants. The meatpacking industry was booming in Alabama, accounting for 10% of its economy, and had a turnover rate that could guarantee almost anyone a job. But the influx of immigrants in the factories came at the resentment of the white workers who felt like their jobs were put in jeopardy. Essentially, illegal immigrants had to keep a low profile. They couldn't afford any contact with law enforcement, so they quietly worked double shifts and were less likely to quit or complain. Here's what a worker going by the name Carlos and his interpreter said on This American Life, which did an episode about Albertville in December of 2017. Yeah, like, we, we don't really yet know our rights, so we, we don't really know how to defend our, our rights uh, in the in the workplace. So, yeah, that's that's kind of a reason, but it's also because we have these, like, families that are suffering that depends on us. I mean, they have us working from the time that we were kids, eight years old. Here, that doesn't really exist, so, you know, we do work harder. It was clear that the managers of the poultry plants preferred to hire Latino workers. Actually, in 2001, Tyson, one of the biggest meatpacking companies, was indicted of recruiting undocumented immigrants to weaken the workers' union. They were taking advantage of the disempowerment of the Latino workers and the ability to overwork and underpay them, which in turn rippled through the entire workforce. For example, their 30-minute break was taken away. But that was all confined to the poultry industry. And if you look at the unemployment rate of the U.S. citizens in the rest of Alabama, Albertville was unchanged. The refugees who needed housing and food created the demand for new jobs. They made the economy become bigger and open businesses. Contradicting the argument of anti-immigrant crusaders, there's no lag in wages when 6,000 Mexicans move in. But we'll come back to this and further examine where the immigrants actually did cost Albertville, or where they didn't. For now, how did they affect the town's crime rate? The short answer, again, is they didn't. And that's true everywhere. Lucero speaks to this too. Yeah, even in terms of violent crime, they've done research and they're actually the least, <laughs> the least probable to commit a crime. A lot of them... But they are fearful, you know? Um, I have a lot of family members who are undocumented. They're always fearful when they're driving because they're nervous that they're going to get stopped and they're going to be sent home, you know, sent to their country. Right. Um, so, so it's very difficult. Um, and it's even right now that I said that, that they'd be sent home. For a lot of them, this is their home, the country. Yeah, so, so it's really hard. I, my uncle, he was sent back, and he's been in this country for 20 years. And it's very difficult. He had kids and everything, and he just had to come back and document it again, which is very difficult. People pay around 10000 or $15,000 to be able to get to the United States. Back in Albertville, in general, 
The only laws the immigrants broke were with traffic, the most accidental of crimes that we know them as car accidents. Coming from mostly rural parts of Mexico, they had to learn what everything meant. The lights, the lines in the street. And when undocumented immigrants got in accidents, they would leave the scene to avoid contact with law enforcement that would likely result in deportation. But the people living in Albertville before took the hit and runs as affirmations of a criminal nature of the newcomers. Alabama ended up passing one of the harshest immigration laws, HB 56, which was designed to make life so unfair and precarious for immigrants that they would self-deport. But what were the grounds for this? At first, it didn't look like it was just prejudice because from 1990 to 2010, when the immigrants arrived, there was actually an alarming outbreak of crime in Albertville. You could see it in the records. Drug possession charges quintupled, property crime rates theft tripled, violent crimes went up by 400%. In news sources, the new Latino population was immediately blamed. Immigrants suffered all the attention for the crimes because they confirmed the xenophobic belief that, as Trump put it, when Mexico sends its people, they're not sending their best. They're sending people that have lots of problems, and they're bringing those problems with us. They're bringing drugs, they're bringing crime, they're rapists, and... But here's the thing that drives this all the way back to prejudice. The vast majority of all charges were on white people who had been living in Albertville forever. Right before immigrants started arriving, and unrelated to their arrival, Matthews was growing in Albertville, an epidemic, as the police said. Almost all of the crimes could be traced back to this problem that had already been in Albertville before the immigrants arrived. Whether or not they had come, during that period of time, the crime rates would have been just as high. So no. In Albertville, Immigrants did not cause the crime rate to go up, and they also did not reduce the job opportunities for white workers. Without much of anything going wrong, Albertville became a token for everything wrong with immigration. Maybe allowing more immigrants into the U.S. doesn't take a lot. Here's Tucker Gibbons coming back to the economy. Refugees play a very large role in the U.S.A.'s economy, and they have ever since they have been seeking asylum. They take up large percentages of many science-based jobs, such as 33% of engineers, 27% of mathematicians and computer scientists, and 24% of physical scientists. It is proven that having refugees present in the U.S. can lower the wages of high school dropouts as well as college graduates. It is very common for people to think of refugees and immigrants as dangers to society and that they only come here to sell drugs, but it is almost always the opposite. Refugees are in need to seek asylum and get away from their countries that could potentially danger them and their families. The reasons they come is to live a happy life and feel safe in their own home, and we make it so difficult for some of them to even get into our country. Refugees contribute multiple different things to our country, including this. Undocumented immigrants contribute 7 to $13 billion towards Social Security every year. It is very common for refugees to work on farms and fields for hours and hours in the scorching heat. A test was then. 6,500 unemployed Americans were offered jobs to work like these refugees do in the fields, and only 268 people took the job. More than half of them quit in a month, and only 3% completed the job. 
This is compared to the 90% of refugees that did complete the job. What would happen if none of these refugees were working in the fields all day? This goes to show if we didn't have refugees in our country, we would be struggling a lot more than we think. It is proven that lowering the amounts of refugees we allow in the country can negatively affect us. They provide so much for our country and they are treated like they don't deserve to be here. They never get enough recognition for the work they do for us and the amounts of them being allowed in our country are lowering every year. Refugees can also impact their receiving countries by being involved in international trade and investment as well as impacting the lives of fellow workers at a potential job. It is very common that once refugees find a job in a new country, they stick with it for a while, and it can give other employees a new perspective on the refugee's life. Being around a native speaker, and obviously a refugee, can give you a much better understanding of what exactly a refugee is, what the, and what the struggle of having to leave your own country is like, as well as being scared for yours and your family's lives. By accepting refugees, that already means less jobs to be filled. It is very common that native speakers slash workers perform more professionally at their job if they are surrounded by other refugees. It makes them feel more comfortable with their position and with the people around them. Accepting refugees into America doesn't only give them a chance at a second life, but it enhances our economy and our national security. Ever since the refugee count has gone up, there is a lower chance of unemployment. Refugees are needed to fill jobs in the USA, and surprisingly, they have a higher employment percentage in the USA than the U.S.-born population. It is even more likely for refugees to be working from ages 25 to 64 than people born in America. There is multiple impacts for accepting countries that bring in more refugees that are avoided because many people believe letting them into our country will affect them negatively. Refugees are proven to have a stronger commitment to their jobs due to them being in need for a better life and strengthening our country. Now we'll hear from Dylan Heinstein, who puts names to this situation. Out of the millions of people forced to leave their country, some really shine above the rest. They show the world that they're ready to give it whatever they got and make the best of their circumstances. A few people pop into mind at first. Albert Einstein, Bob Marley, Freddie Mercury. It goes so much deeper than that. Some of the refugees really put their entire lives into making this country a better place. To delve specifically into the refugees who benefit the communities, I want to focus on Ilhan Omar. She's a Minnesota U.S. representative and a Somali-American refugee who fled her home with her family. She spent years in refugee camps in both Kenya and the United States. In the 90s, her family moved to New York and she began her path towards political activism. Last year, she succeeded the Minnesota District Representative for 44 years. She's one of the many refugees who tried to serve and better the country that gave her a chance. Even recently, she introduced a new bill to get rid of dirty money in politics so that companies can't use as much as they want to influence and fund elections. Before this bill, corporations who had broken the law could be pardoned as long as they funded the right candidate. For example, an article by the New York Times titled, From $25, 10 million, A Guide to Political Donations, shows how large corporations and companies use their money to influence elections depending on how much they gain from civic candidate. The corporations funding specific candidates can completely shift the tides of an election. It goes to show that Omar cares about the U.S. and providing the country with appropriate leaders. In addition, she gives a new perspective for the predominantly white male politicians on how to handle foreign policies. She's had more experience with the war-torn countries and the starving people than almost everyone else in the house. And she perseveres to make foreign relations better, even with the backlash she get experiences for being a freshman politician and a refugee. When addressing the situations in Venezuela, Omar said that our focus should be on diplomacy and cultural and economic exchange. I think we are seen as a leader and we have an opportunity for people to follow if we are leading with moral conviction. 
And though a lot of her views on foreign relations come off as controversial, specifically about terrorism and going revolutionaries, I think she's just empathetic towards those who have lost their homes because of wars and fighting. Leaders like Ilhan Omar are paramount to the progression of her country because they're able to see both sides of the story, and it's clear that she wants the best for everyone. Madeleine Albright is also an example of a refugee success story. In 1939, Nazi Germany occupied Czechoslovakia, and her family was forced to flee. For most of her life, she was told that the family fled for political reasons, since her father was a Czech diplomat. But in reality, her family was Jewish, and some of her relatives even lost their lives in concentration camps. After World War II, her family returned to Czechoslovakia, only to be made refugees again because of the Soviet coup. But this time, they fled to the U.S. There, she received a college education. She spent a lot of her political career helping in elections and supporting those she believed in. She also taught international affairs at Georgetown University to educate young adults about a world about them and to prepare them for the future of immigrants and refugees. In 1997, she was elected Secretary of State in a unanimous decision by the Senate. During that time, she remained a key player in diplomacy, human rights, and democracy. At the turn of the century, she became the most high-ranking government official to visit North Korea, knowing full well their plans to build nuclear weaponry. She devoted more time and effort towards the betterment of the country than some of the politicians born here. Because like Omar, she understands that there can't be peace in her country without peace in others. So, we can see how immigrants benefit the country. First of all, they are the least likely demographic to be behind bars. They contribute more in taxes and social services than native-born Americans and have a net gain on the economy. They give us Yahoo, Google, AT&T, and are twice as likely to start businesses. The cultures immigrants bring enrich the culture of the United States and their unique perspective as people from other countries is irreplaceable within foreign affairs. But it's important to remember a quote by George Bourgeois. We wanted workers and we got people instead. The most important reason to grant refugee status to asylum seekers is to give them a safe place to live. Not to help boost our economy, although that is a gratuity. Accepting refugees into first world countries can impact the lives of the refugees as well as the accepting countries. It's obviously the refugees' way to skip all violence that could be occurring in their home country. The U.S., for example, should be able to provide for them and make sure they feel comfortable and not in danger with their current home. Denying certain refugees into your country can affect their lives quickly and easily. With them being around whatever sort of violence is occurring in their home country, they could easily get hurt. It also gives the accepting countries the opportunity to, to provide them with work, education, and the ability to live a new, healthy, restarted lifestyle, which is a win-win for both sides. Refugees are coming to the U.S. as an escape from war and extreme poverty and violence. As Lucero says, Who wants to leave their country? Nobody would want to leave their country, you know? And for those people who do leave their country because of issues going on,
um, they're being driven just by this idea of uh, why aren't you in your country? Why are people coming here? You know, they're, they're driven by sometimes these um, ideas of people saying they're coming to take our jobs, they're coming to do, you know? Yeah. They're driven by that but don't really fully understand the stories of people. When my students have presented, they present at UC Berkeley and they talked about how they were um, in their country but it wasn't safe anymore. They couldn't be out because gangs were trying to um, like get them to join the gang or they had um, family members who were killed. And so that's the reason they had to come over and, and even their experience of being at the border and when they had to be locked in what they call the yeleras. The yeleras is translated into cooler, a cooler, which is really cold. And so a lot of people were just in awe of like hearing all these stories and it really opens up your eyes. These are kids who are in our schools and people don't know about it. They don't know about the struggle. And so I think when people start to understand what is really happening and can see it up close and know people who are actually experiencing it, I think that's when we can have a little bit of a shift of how we can advocate. I think the thing, right, like um, when you think of politics, the things that move most politics is money. Um, but when you don't have money, you have to have people. So the more people are united and trying to make change, I think that that'll be a start. Um, I think the really changing the rhetoric of what people think when they when you hear of people coming over, it's just this automatic thinking of oh they want to take our jobs, we don't have enough already, and they want to come in. They're they're terrorists, right? This 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 whole idea that people have, I think, needs to switch. Yeah, no, I completely agree. Um, and it's also like, if if the U.S. isn't going to um, accept immigrants, then where are they? What are they supposed to do and go? Right, right. So yeah, I, I think it's the whole. I think it's also just connected to values, right? Like, how are we human beings, and how do we treat each other? You, you I, I realize that it's not as simple as that. I always thought, well, you're a good human being. So, how can we be better as a safe country for refugees? What if the U.S. did something that most people would think of as out of the question? What if we welcomed all asylum seekers who applied as refugees into the United States? Could we? Like, does the U.S. have the capacity for something like that? States, along with many other countries, seems to function from the value of having control and force. 
There's this tribalistic idea, you see it all the time, of separation and being the ones to outlast. It's Trump saying he won't have Mexico's problems and it's wars over resources, where you literally kill as many people as you can to serve your country. It's the misguided fact that the government can't view anyone across the border as the same humans that live here. What is a person from Syria? An illegal alien. So the American government invests so much in their military but doesn't do anything to help the people of Yemen or Sudan. And it's all to keep their position as one of the most powerful countries. That's a position that should revolve around supporting the entire world for the same reason that the 1% shouldn't have 90% of a population's wealth. The well-being of so many people, illegal aliens if you must, is disregarded when the government passes spending and immigration bills. But really, how can anyone be an illegal alien if borders are man-made? When we value borders over people, that's where our priorities are sick. What if instead our country was modeled on the values of 1951 Cafe, where people are treated with dignity, where culture is celebrated, and people strive to create equal opportunity? Imagine what kind of world that might make. Find table spaces, say your social graces, bow your head, they're pisces, but you and I, we're pioneers, we make our Jesus.